listeners, and welcome back to Humdrum. We are delighted today to speak with Dr. Ruth Van Rieken. Dr. Van Rieken is a speaker, writer, and a community builder across boundaries, nations, communities, races, you name it, she's built bridges there. A TED speaker, Ruth is a co-author of many books, including the very popular Third Culture Kids and the co-founder of Families and Global Transition. Like many of us, Ruth has also moved across borders and measured identities. Ruth is from Nigeria and America, a global citizen. But Ruth is special also because we hear her today as a scholar. Welcome to Humdrum, Ruth. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate what you guys are doing here. And I'm glad to be here and just to share my story and the various visions that I have for how we can communicate across borders and um, as people of many backgrounds. And I think that to me is a passionate interest of mine. And it's probably the greatest gift to my life that I grew up with people uh, who weren't looking like me or didn't have the same culture as I did, but we shared our basic humanity. And from that, we made friendships and we grew and we loved each other well. And so I appreciate this opportunity very much. Thank you. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that background? I was born in Kano, Nigeria, way back in 1945. It was almost prehistoric by now. My parents had gone there, they were teachers, they were with the mission group, and my grandparents had worked for years and are both buried in Iran. So my father had grown up outside of his culture. He taught me many things I think about life and people and difference and similarities and all those good things, which I didn't even realize as I grew up, but that was important. When my parents went, they, went with my mother pregnant because of the war. So my sister was born in Portugal on the way over. And so we had four people from four different continents when it was just me. And then my four siblings were born after that. So it's kind of surprising we all got together. In today's world, that may not be so uncommon. I know many people listening have probably had family members born on lots of continents, but it was kind of different than it was the beginning days of globalization. And I grew up in Nigeria. I loved it. I grew up in Kano, which is a city in the north. I loved my trees. I loved the market. It was normal life for me. And of course, every few years, every four years, we'd go back to the States and I'd see my grandmother and then we'd go back to Nigeria again. When I was 13, I left Nigeria for the last time in terms of living there permanently. And when I was 14, my parents went back, but then I stayed in the States because there was no international school there. And so I lived four years without seeing my parents, which was kind of normal for how people did it in my generation. And of course, we didn't have internet and all that. But I had a wonderful experience living with my grandmother and my aunt and stayed in the same school, which was, I look back now, was a great gift because a lot of kids with my background move way more than I did as far as establishing friendships. Then I went to college and married my husband. And then we ultimately, he went to medical school and then we went back. And the surprise of my life was when he got a scholarship to go back during his senior year. And 
we got it for Nigeria and Nigeria would give us visas because they had just finished a war by effing war. And so they weren't so friendly towards Americans. And I couldn't believe that the country of my birth rejected me. That was sort of a big moment. Like, wait a minute, you guys don't understand. I belong to you. I belong there. And they said I couldn't come. And so that was just a huge shock to me. And part of the story, I guess, of growing up among many cultures. But because of that, we went to Liberia. And then we got to go see my parents at Christmas. Once we got to Liberia, we did get a visa. And seeing my homeland again was very powerful and very moving. And then we came back and my husband went to St. Louis and I hit the first depression of my life. And I know now it was because I had touched this world that I had lost so many years ago. And I had no idea that it was any grief or anything else. So years later, when I was 39, we were back in Liberia. We were raising our children there. Our daughter was going to leave for a few months. Uh, the civil things were happening and she was going to start school in the States and we were going to join her. But it kind of created a crisis in me. And I started to journal to try to understand my story, why this story that I loved, I just loved Africa. I loved growing up as I did, but there was this other place and realizing that the paradox of a life like this is that you have a lot of loss, even while you have a lot of gain. Because you're always saying goodbye to somebody and you're always losing place you love, even if you like the next place. So that's how I started in what I do. And when some of that writing got out, other people said, oh, I thought I was the only one. And so ever since then, I've been working with this topic and with families who are raising people cross-culturally. And my life just got richer and richer from that. Wow, that is a beautiful story. So as a third culture kid, do you want to talk a little bit more about what that means and how we define that? Back in the 1950s, when, of course, I was still in Nigeria and had no idea about the world very much, there was a sociologist from Michigan State, Dr. Ruth Yusim, who went to India, and she and her husband were going to look at how people from different cultures did business together. It was the beginning of international business and international trade and in a new way. And so that was all fine. And they wrote all kinds of fancy papers. But what they realized was that people, when they came from one country and they lived in a second, they didn't live in the way that they would have lived back in their home country or in their host country. But they formed a way of life that she called an interstitial culture or a third culture, a space in between. And... So she called that the third culture in that situation and kids who grew up in that third culture kids. What she realized was the kids she was meeting that were in this environment were different than the kids she was teaching back in Michigan who'd been in one place. So she began to study that. And I think the thing that might have made it interesting, if you think about it, historically, people from a country that go to another country often set up in a sense of third culture. They set up some interstitial space where, whether it's the Indian subculture here in Indianapolis and or Chinatown or American embassy overseas. But what was different about this group was the people who were sharing it came from lots of different ethnicities and backgrounds and races and sectors. They were missionaries, they were military, they were corporate, they were foreign service. And there was something that they shared in their experience, for all the difference, there was something that they shared. And so that was, I think, what was kind of intriguing because it was different than the way people generally set up communities. They set this one up by shared experience as opposed to shared race or 
ethnicity as in the old ways. And so that became what she called the third culture. And when people say, well, what is it you share? Because what is it you share? We share a cross-cultural lifestyle. In the old days, you know, usually most kids were born and raised where people around them looked like them and, and so forth. But in these early days, before it was as common as it is now, uh, that whole issue of transcending cultures, like every time I took a boat ride or a plane ride, you know, one side of the trip you drive on the right side of the road, the other trip you drive on the left. And if you mix them up, you're in big trouble. And so those kind of things, you know, it the moves were not just place, but they were actually cultural moves. And one place you look people in the eye if you, you know, are going to be respectful. And the next place you better not look them in the eye. So as a child, I was learning to negotiate cultural rules, even though I didn't know it, but you, you figured it out pretty soon. That was just one of the gifts that we have. Then it's a high mobility. Either I was leaving or my friends were leaving because so somebody's always saying goodbye. And so there's this chronic cycle, really, of separation and loss. I'm losing my friends who are in the host country if I go back to the States. Then I lose them if I come back here, plus, you know, the people in an environment like that who are also working outside of their passport country are often moving too. So you have two big overarching realities. You have the cross-cultural high mobility. And then in those days, we often had a system identity that different than a child who, say, works, whose dad works for a bank in those days in Chicago and could go up the corporate ladder or the mom could be working for some, you know, big company over here, the family wasn't really involved because the parent would do their career, but it didn't change the situation for the family. In this environment, when it, you know, the parent changed, it affects the whole family. But also when you're in that new country, you kind of, you know, the diplomats kid kind of represents the country they're coming from in terms of other people's eyes. So there's that bit of pressure. And then there's an expected repatriation where the assumption is that one day you go back, quote unquote, home. Now, certainly that's changing, but that was why people set up international schools, why people wanted to keep their kids ready to go back in those days. So I can tell you where it's progressed later, but right now you can ask me a new question. <laughs> I'm going to pick up on that. And I'm wondering what the role is of family in finding a home or moving friends, you know, what is the role of our own families, but also our friends changing as you move? Well, I think that certainly this is one of the biggest reasons that we try and talk a lot about how do you do transitions well, because the family is key. The family is hopefully the one stabilizing part of your life. Now, in today's world, you know, more families break up. And so that's not even always so. But in some pretend perfect world, the family is the place where no matter where you go, you have that unit. And so I always tell parents they need to try and make traditions that are transportable so that you develop something that is our family history and culture, no matter where we go, whether it's the same food that you eat or the plate or something. And of course, families also can add different pieces of the different cultures they've been with in the sense that doesn't make a third culture, like some people think, but it, it's a way to affirm our story as a family. And what are the things that make us us? Because nobody in the world shares it exactly like we do, even though we are all part of a global community. This sense of belonging to family is really critical. But it's also important for parents, for themselves and for their kids to say goodbye well. 
and learn how to do that so you can keep connections. You say goodbye in a good way, but then that also helps you maintain some kind of connection if you want to later. But families are critical. And for many kids who've grown up many places, the family is the one constant that when you say where's home, they say, well, any place my parents are, even if they didn't live there. So that's a very key thing. I'm wondering also about if you talk a little bit about forming identity, which I'm sure is a very integral part of this, right. what that process might be. The question of identity is becoming a global issue. After I started working with the Third Culture Kid profile and Dave Pollack had developed a profile, he was the co-author of the first TCK book and he died. His son is now the third author. But as we were talking about these things and the cross-cultural mobility and stuff, more and more people would listen and say, well, I relate to what you're saying, particularly about identity. Who am I? Where's home? When people say, where are you from? You don't really know. And so this became, people would come and they'd say, well, I relate to that, but I, my parents never went overseas and I don't understand why. But anytime I talked to them, there was a cross-cultural piece. Maybe their parents were from two different countries. Maybe their parents were immigrants. And in the first days, we would say, well, you know, we have expected repatriation that makes it different. But actually, in today's world, immigrant kids go back and forth, too. And so it isn't as different as it was. So all of these people were talking and saying, you know, well, am I a TCK? Am I not? And I think that what uh, happened was finally I tried to make a different name for it and said anybody who grows up cross-culturally is a cross-cultural kid and TCK is one. So I think in terms of identity formation, what happens is when you keep switching cultures, generally there's three roots and three anchors, I think, to identity formation. There's the family, there's the community, and there's the place. And how we relate with those is both an anchor that can keep us solid and straight and firm and secure. And it's a mirror. It tells us who we are. Our families, you know, tell us that we're loved, we hope, and that they know what our gifts are and the community knows who we are and we know how to function in this place and our parents can help us. When we keep moving back and forth, our mirrors and our anchors keep changing. And if you can see that on some slides, it's really pretty amazing when you realize how many people the world changes and you have to restart. In traditional environments, kids would learn the rules of their culture as children. They test them as adolescents and they kind of figure them out and then they move on to adulthood. But when you keep switching cultural rules, you have to keep restarting. And it's not that you can't make it, but you don't have that steady direction that kids used to have. And when everybody around you has different rules, you don't just see the mirror. You can't look at somebody else. You can look at them and say, you know, well, I'm not like that. But that's part of the stress of it. And it's not that you can't come out in the end, but I think maybe we have to think a little bit more deeply about how we form identity. And it's not just based our environment and, and the world around us, but how do we as parents even help our children develop their core identity as humans and the person that they're made to be with the gifts that they have that are translatable and transportable. So I think, you know, in one way, it can be a great gift, but it's kind of a new challenge. It doesn't happen as automatically as it used to. So based on your experience, especially growing up in Nigeria and then the U.S., I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of race, especially for third country. Right. Well, 
when I was first studying about all this and talking to people and all that, I came to realize how important it was what you look like compared to your dominant culture. When I grew up in Nigeria, I was very clearly a foreigner. And so when people looked at me, they expected me to be different. And I spoke Hausa, I played with the kids, but they knew I was different. I knew they were different, not in our humanity, but in how we did things. And so I wasn't expected to be them. And they didn't expect to be me, but we could be friends all over the place because we all wanted to win at soccer and all those things. So it was clear who I was in relationship to them. When I took a trip back to the U.S., it was pre-integration days, pre-civil rights. It was 1958. And when I went to school in Chicago, I looked like every kid in the school. So the assumption was I was like them. And I didn't know anything culturally because they didn't see below me. So we call that being a hidden immigrant. If I had been a clear immigrant, they knew I came from someplace else. They would have given me more space. But when I didn't know who Elvis Presley was, when I didn't know how to dress for snow, it's like, well, what's your problem? Or I didn't know how to swim. I mean, I didn't have those experiences growing up. And I didn't realize they didn't know how to bargain and market. Like I I was really good at that, but it didn't matter when I was back in the States because nobody bargained anymore. And so the skill sets that I had in one place didn't translate, but because I look like them, that was, you know, something. And then, of course, we have an adopted box where you can look different, but your internal self has been, you can be a true international adoptee, or maybe people who've just been in one country so long, they're actually more like that country. They think, you know, we we talk about you think alike. And then, of course, there's a mirror box where people traditionally would look like their surrounding dominant culture, and and they've grown up that way. But language is also important in this whole identity thing, because when I came back as a U.S. citizen to the U.S., I'd grown up in English, and so my accent was like everybody else's, too. Sometimes if our accent is different, even if we look alike, people figure out fairly fast that we're not from there. Or people are surprised that we speak in the adopted box, you know, how many people have heard oh, you really speak good English. And I think, well, I grew up in English, but, you know, maybe I look like I'm not a traditional person from here. So race is very much a factor, not only in our identity and how people perceive us, because nobody sees below anybody's skin. And I think that that's one of the gifts that I've had is that I grew up with people with lots of colors and lots of nationalities But where we connected was everybody from every culture, race or anything, one at their essence, we're made to be relational beings. And when we find a place to relate and we are all people who feel, and one friend said to me, you know, feelings are the universal language that when somebody's lost a relative, you're going to feel sad. I don't care where you're from. And I think that's one of the reasons that this topic has gone so well, because when I speak, or other people speak about it, I can have lots of nationalities, lots of colors, lots of everything in front of me. But when you're talking about these cycles of separation loss, you're talking about identity, everybody wants to know who they are. Everybody wants to have that sense, I belong someplace. Everybody has that wants a sense that my life is significant and it matters that I'm here. And if we can't find that place, I don't care where you're from or what you look like. It's an empty spot. And so we're looking for it. And so... I just think, you know, my life has been incredibly rich because 
of the diversity, not just in the way people look, but the whole essence of culture and how people look. And yet we find places to relate because we're people. So I'm wondering about two things in our history that has impacted this process. One is migration as human. Since ancient times, we've been migrating. Uh-huh. And the impact of that and what we have learned from it. And two is colonialism. One where there is a power play and the other where it is more natural or organic. And if you would speak to those ideas. Well, I think that people have migrated all the centuries for different reasons. Some have been for exploration. Everybody in the early days of migration didn't always take their family, but certainly we have the families who migrated. And I think the one thing in those days, of course, when people migrated, they went to stay because it wasn't so easy to go back and forth. And so there was more probably of the idea of assimilation. And when I get there, I'm going to be, I don't know all that, but I mean, that I think would have been one difference or they, like I said, they didn't have some of the early explorers maybe, you know, left their, like David Livingston, I think probably left his family back in England when he explored. So there were some differences that way. And there wasn't the back and forthness. Or if, if you raise your children someplace else, they may never, ever go back to where the parents were. That's a difference in today's world where we are so interacting that you can go anywhere well before COVID easily. So that's a difference in how people migrate now is that they don't, necessarily leave in the same way that they did leave. And also the migration patterns are more intermixed when you get someplace, you know, in every country now, people from all over are living there. But I think one of the the things that certainly is a change and is coming, and I've got some friends who've done a lot of study on the post-colonial literature, and I was just listening to a lecture yesterday about how, of course, in the colonial period, like you said, the power went to the people who were in charge. I grew up in colonial Nigeria. And so the fact that I was white, I was a minority. But even though I didn't think of myself with power, there's no question that I had privilege. I had food. I had a house. I had transportation. And, you know, that's the way it was. And it was almost like assuming that just how it was. I think is that has changed. The issue of how does the power dynamic play out. And that's a whole nother discussion, which is wonderful. So Ruth, what are some of the challenges or what is it that is a big learning from this experience for the third culture kids? Well, I think it's several things. I think first normalizing my experience was incredibly important to me and to so many people that the way we grew up or are growing up in today's world is different than people traditionally have grown up. And so in doing that, I'm not crazy when I'm not quite sure where I'm from and I'm not quite sure where I belong. And so I can work and understanding first who I am, like I said before, no matter where I am. But I think also to realize I can feel at home in more than one place. I think a lot of times when people say, where do you belong? I actually feel I belong in quite a few places. To me, that's lovely. That's part of the richness that I can belong in Nigeria. I feel at home. I can feel at home in Indianapolis. And I get off the airplane, I feel at home in the international world even. So I guess a lot of us feel at home in airports, I think. But um, So that's one thing that maybe we have to start to give ourselves more permission. If I and what we expect from others, we don't just have to choose one. Now, 
we all need a place to belong where we feel that is a place for me. For me, actually, the international world is probably the place I feel in cultural context the most belonging. But when I realize that, then I also can accept that other people belong in different places because I have my lens, they have their lens. And so, you know, we can understand that. But I think what I see, I think when I started this, I really thought, well, if we could just all get along in a sense and understand each other and be global. I mean, it's been such a gift in my life. And my greatest surprise, my greatest sadness is that instead of doing that, a lot of times we're now trying to define ourselves by differences again. Even TCK can say, well, I'm a TCK. Nobody else can understand me. I think, no, that's your experience. You're still a human being. And so it feels to me that all of a sudden the world is kind of polarizing as people are terrified that if they connect with other people, they'll lose who they are themselves. You can't lose you. You can enrich you to me as I get to know other people. But that makes me sad. And I think, how do we start that discussion? Not just even a discussion. We've had a lot of discussion. How do we start the reality of people realizing you don't have to be afraid? of other people, because underneath all of that is still a human being, even if they're very different in detail from you. So I think the next generation is going to have an interesting challenge because the possibility is there for really wonderful connection. Kids are going to school now with people from different backgrounds, different colors, and kids, you know, start out being friends. And so the the possibility is there. But how do we connect to that humanity so I'm not afraid when your external part is different than me because that's my surprise is that it feels like suddenly we've had this shift and everybody's trying to define themselves first by difference I'm not you I'm not you to make themselves be somebody and I think when we become secure in who we are I don't have to be different from you to be somebody I can enjoy what we share and then the differences are the details and I guess that's my vision and my hope and my sense and when we're at families and global transition, we are so diverse in who we come there. But we share this essence of an experience that we can share our feelings about it. And I think this is community. This is hope. This is fun. It gives me joy. That's what I hope the next generation will really do better than we're doing right now and come to find out that we can really affirm each other and um, find all those places to connect as humans. And then we can enjoy all the different food and we can enjoy all the different, you know, dress and all that kind of stuff. Culture is really the place we try and find our needs. If you want to think about that, everybody needs to be in relationship, right? So we find ways that we say hello. We find ways that are culturally a way to connect with people, but we're all doing essentially the same thing. We all have our feelings. Cultures have different ways you express your feelings. If some countries cultures you wail, some countries and cultures you keep a stiff upper, upper lip. But we feel it underneath. We're all creative. We have different ways we create. We have different kinds of music. You know, I collect musical instruments from around the world because there's only four ways people make music. They make it with strings and percussion and wind and brass. But what they use to make it with is so fun. You know, sometimes it's a tin can, sometimes it's a gourd, sometimes it's this. And so when we can see that culture is still something that we are using for the same reasons, maybe we could really not be afraid and not think what's so weird about it, but come to see it as interesting and learn. And just, I just would wish 
for our world, us as individuals that we come to enjoy who we are, as we are. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, that was so beautiful. And really, thank you, Ruth, for sharing that and the humanity that you are pitching for. I absolutely loved it. Thank you again. This is so much wisdom. And I truly hope our listeners, I'm absolutely positive, actually, that our listeners will take off, take so much from this. Thank you. We are so excited to have been speaking to you. Have you back again soon. Thank you, Ruth. And thank you for what you're doing and trying to share the stories of people who may not have their stories heard. Because once you know somebody's story, everything else kind of fades away because that's where we meet each other in the stories. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate that so much. Thank you.